You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. bow our heads together. Father, it is before your word that we come now, and our desire is that our hearts may be as open before you as our Bibles are before us, and that you, O Spirit of God, would be our teacher and our instructor today in your word. We thank you for revealing to us things that go against our natural bent and our natural understanding. Thank you for revealing to us things which are difficult to understand. We pray that you would give us grace to understand these things to apply these things and to bow our knees before your revealed truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 6. We'll read together verses 35 through verse 47. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Who here knows what tomorrow is? Somebody other than one of my kids answer this. How many of you know what tomorrow is? A few people? Okay, somebody want to shout it out? Who said Halloween? It might be Halloween tomorrow, but tomorrow is Reformation Day. How many of you are going to do something to celebrate Reformation Day tomorrow? My family and nobody else? One other person? Well, we've got a lot of work to do, don't we? Do you know what Reformation Day is? 494 years ago, tomorrow, a monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed 95 statements to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, not with the intention of dividing the church or breaking off from the church, and, but mostly for the intention of trying to reform the church. And those 95 theses were nailed to the door of the church in Wittenberg because on the next day, which was All Saints Day, everybody would be coming into the church for the Mass, and they would have to walk right past the door. And Martin Luther's 95 statements. And these were 95 things that he wanted to discuss amongst the faculty and amongst the teachers and the leaders at the church at Wittenberg there. And so it was the most public place, the most visible place, hoping to sort of begin a discussion. And Martin Luther could never have envisioned the worldwide ramifications, and the eternal consequences of his action that day in nailing those 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. 
He had no idea of the wildfire that he started known as the Protestant Reformation. And there's therefore no more appropriate verse for us to discuss this morning than John 6, verse 44. I didn't plan it this way. Actually, about 10 or 12 days ago, I came to the realization, I'm going to be talking about a verse that really lies right at the heart of Reformation theology on the Sunday prior to Reformation Day. How providential is that? I believe in the sovereignty of God, and that's one reason I do, is little things like that. Dealing with a verse that really cuts to the the issue, the core of the theology behind the Protestant Reformation is John 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. That verse and the theology of that verse deals with this issue, the ability versus inability of fallen man. Just what is is a fallen son or child of Adam capable of doing? Is that fallen child of Adam capable of repenting, of believing, of turning, of divorcing himself from his sins, of coming to God, exercising repentance and exercising faith entirely by himself and of himself? Or is a child of Adam, a fallen child of Adam, unable to do any of those things apart from the grace of God? Your answer to that question will determine which of these two camps you stand in theologically that which would agree with the Roman Catholic Church, or that which disagrees with the Roman Catholic Church. Those really are your two options. Martin Luther had a debate with another Roman Catholic monk, not monk, that's a different thing, a monk named Desiderius Erasmus. And out of that debate with Erasmus came Martin Luther's probably most famous book titled The Bondage of the Will. The Bondage of the Will. Martin Luther believed that of all of the dozens of books and works that he wrote, that The Bondage of the Will was his most significant, his most landmark book. In fact, that was really the only book that he felt was really at the center of all of his work, was that issue, The Bondage of the Will. Martin Luther believed it was significant because he believed that the fulcrum upon which the entire Reformation turned was this issue. Is man free and able to do what God has commanded him to do? Or is man in slavery to his sin and unable to do what God has commanded him to do? And you say, I thought the Reformation had to do with justification by faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone. Well, it did. But that whole issue really pivots on that fulcrum. For if man is able to do what God has commanded him to do, then he is able to repent and to believe and to turn and to do works which merit salvation and grace. And man has a part in his salvation, so then it would be over here on the work side. But if indeed man is unable to do all of that, as Luther suggested, then it has to be by grace and not by works. Because God has to make man able, and that would come entirely by the grace of God. So Erasmus was over in this camp, and Erasmus said, man is able to repent and to believe and to trust Christ entirely by himself without aid from the Spirit of God, that God is doing a work, but it's not anything upon man's will. Man, by his own will, chooses Christ, chooses salvation, and man cooperates with God in the act of salvation. So God makes salvation possible. Man actualizes it. God makes it, uh, God sort of provides it, and makes it possible, but man by an act of his own will is the one who pulls the switch and actually makes the atonement his own by an act of his own will and what he does. This is yes-we-can theology. Yes, we can. We can do it. 
So just come on in, come to Jesus, it's easy. Yes, you can. On the other side of the debate was Luther who said, no, no, you can't. You can't. You cannot, by an act of your own will, please God. You can't merit salvation. You can't work for it. You are unable to do and to fulfill the commands that God has given to you to fulfill. Grace is necessary. A work in the heart is necessary. Man is dead in his trespasses and sins and unable in his flesh, in his carnality, to do anything which pleases God. And so, no, you can't. Man does not cooperate with God, each of them contributing a piece to this puzzle called salvation. In fact, God must do all of it from first to last. Everything, including man's response to the proclamation of the gospel, is an act of grace and a work of grace. Those, those are the two sides of the debate, as it were. And all of it boils down to, is Jesus telling the truth when he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. If the answer to that question is no, then this theology over here, Erasmus, is right. If the answer to that question is Jesus telling the truth is yes, then Luther was right and the Protestant doctrines of the Reformation stand. Man is unable. Man is depraved. Man is truly wicked. And if anything is to happen in the heart of man, it must be a work of God's grace, God's calling, and God that does it. Because no man can come to the Son unless the Father who sent the Son draws that man to the Son. That work of grace is necessary. So that's John 6, verse 44. To say that this is, this doctrine of human inability or ability or inability is a hated doctrine, well that's, that would be an understatement. It is hated. There are a few doctrines in all of scripture that will elicit as much hostility and anxiety and hatred as to telling a sinner, you cannot do anything to please God. In fact, you are so locked up and bound in your sin that you can do nothing. For you to even respond in a way that is appropriate to God requires a sovereign act of His Spirit and of His grace. That offends sinners. It does. In fact, I think it offends many Christians. Particularly Christians who are, have never come to a full understanding of the depth of their own wickedness and their own depravity. And when I read John 6.44, I know how wicked and sinful I am. And I can tell you, I would swear on my life that John 6.44 is true. If it were not for the grace of God, I would never have responded even remotely appropriately to the gospel proclamation. That is a work of God and a work of God's grace entirely. That was necessary. God's grace was necessary. J.C. Ryle says there's no, there's no doubt, this is no doubt a very humbling truth and one which every age has called forth the hatred and opposition of man. The favorite notion of man is that he can do what he likes, repent or not repent, believe or not believe, come to Christ or not come to Christ entirely at his own discretion. In fact, man likes to think that his salvation is in his own power, end quote. That's true. Man likes to believe that he is independent. I can choose or not choose. Say yes or not say yes. By an act of my own will, I can choose and I can decide. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Something must happen in the heart of a sinner in order for him to come to the Son. And that work is the drawing of the Father. So this week, we're going to be looking at this verse, but we're only going to look at half of it, as you might have suspected. And that is the half that deals with the inability of man. The inability of man. Next week, we're going to look at what God does in order to overcome our inability, and bring us to faith in Christ. Because we know, obviously, that there are some who come to the Son. Remember verse 37? All that the Father has given to me will come to me. There is a whole mass of humanity, a whole mass of humanity that has actually come to the Son. And yet Jesus says no one can come. So what is it that makes somebody go from not being able to come to coming? How can those who are not able actually do this? It's because the Father has drawn them. So we'll take one Sunday to look at this doctrine of inability, what it is, what it isn't, what causes it? How far-reaching is it? 
And does this negate human responsibility? And then next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll deal with this action of the Father, the drawing of the Father of those whom he has given to the Son, and then the raising them up on the last day. So John 6.44, we'll begin, we'll just take this phrase, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me. No one can come to me. Now literally in the Greek, that reads, no one can come to me. That's why all of the English translations agree and translated it as no one can come to me because what the verse really means is no one can come to me. We all clear on what it says? We all clear on what it means? You may hate that truth. There's nothing unclear about that truth. You may not like what it says. It may offend you, but there's nothing unclear in the words. It means what it means. No one can come to me. I want you to notice how comprehensive the language is. It's no one. Not some can come, not some are unable to come, but no one. Jesus could not have painted humanity with a broader brush than he paints in verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me. That is all of humanity. It's not Jews, it's not Gentiles, it's not atheists, it's not those who are really sinners. It's everybody. It's the self-righteous, it's the religious, it's fourth-generation people who have become Christians. It is the pagan who's never heard the name of Jesus. It's the person who's grown up in the church. Nobody can come to the Son unless the Father who sent the Son draws him. It is comprehensive and universal language. And we see it all the way through the text. Do you remember up in verse 37? It is all that the Father gives me that will come to me. Jesus is using this all-inclusive language all the way through from verse 37 on. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Who is it that comes to the Father? Some or all of those whom the Father has given to the Son. It's all. It's not some. It's not most. But it's all. Who is it in verse 38 and 39 that the Son keeps? It's all. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing. It's not some, it's not most, but it's all that is kept. Look at verse 40. It is everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him that has eternal life. Verse 44. It is no one who can come to the Son unless the Father who sent Him draws Him. Verse 45, it's written in the prophets, they shall be taught of God, and everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Verse 46, not that anyone has seen God at any time, or seen, uh, seen, sorry, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. So all the way through this passage, Jesus is using this all-inclusive language to speak of these groups of people, and he is distinguishing, delineating between those who are given by the Father to him and those who are not given by the Father to him. And he uses this all-inclusive language, we see it in verse 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's no one. Now, if Jesus had limited it, if he had said to the Jews who were listening to him, you cannot come to me, or some here cannot come to me, then we in our sinfulness might have been tempted to find some limitation upon that verse and say, well, Jesus is here describing the Jews who were under a judicial hardening or he's describing those who were rejecting him. Or he's describing just the Jewish leaders in the synagogue at Capernaum. And we would never would have tried to make that verse applicable to us. But he paints with such a broad brush that we find ourselves included in that. It's not just a couple of the Jews who were standing in front of him. It's not even the entire crowd or everybody in the synagogue that day. Who is it? It's all of humanity. If you are a fallen sinful child of Adam, you're described in verse 44. No one can come to me. It's all-inclusive language. There's other language in verse 44, by the way, that connects it to verse 37 through 40. And I want you to notice a couple of things. Verse 44 speaks of coming to Christ. No one can come to me. We've already found out what coming to him means, right? We saw in verse 37 that those who give the Father gives to the Son come to him. We've seen in verse 30, hmm, 
39. No, verse 37, the ones who come to me, I will certainly not cast out. And those who come to the Son in verse 39 uh, are given to him, and the Son loses none of them. What does it mean to come to the Son? Verse 40, to behold the Son, to see the Son, and to believe upon the Son, to place faith in the Son. That's what Jesus is, that's what Jesus' description of coming means. So he's already mentioned coming up in the previous passage. There's another thing that connects verse 44 to what has gone before. And it is the reference to the sending of the Father. We saw in verses 38 and 39 that the Father sent the Son, and this is the will of Him who sent me. There's another thing that connects verse 44 with verses 37 to 40, and it is the reference to being raised up on the last day. Do you see it at the end of verse 44? The one who is drawn by the Father, the Son, will raise up on the last day. We saw that at the end of verse 39, and we saw that at the end of verse 40. So don't for a moment think that just because we have the Jewish expression of unbelief in verses 30, uh, 41 through 43, that we have broken off and now we have an entirely different subject. We don't. Jesus is now stating explicitly in verse 44 what was implicit in verses 37 through 40. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. That implies something. What does it imply? It implies that coming to the Son requires being given by the Father to the Son. That's what is implied. It implies that those who are not given will not come. And that everyone who is given will come. Now Jesus states it explicitly. No implications. Verse 44, no one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now what type of inability is this that is being described? The word can is the word in the Greek dunatai, and it's a word that comes from dunamis, which means power or strength. It's not describing a lack of permission. It is describing a lack of power. No man has the strength. No man has the power. No man has the capacity or the ability to come to the Son unless the Father who sent the Son draws that individual to the Son. Man is unable because he lacks the power or the capacity or the ability to do it. Not because he lacks permission. God has opened up the door of the gospel invitation. It's not that men lack permission to come. God beseeches sinners and calls them to come. But no man has the power, the strength, the capacity, the ability to come. John uses this phrase, no man can come. And I want you to see how he uses uh, this this not being able to do something to describe a lack of power elsewhere in his gospel. Turn back to John chapter 3. I want you to track with me through just a couple of passages so you can see how John and Jesus use this phrase, cannot do something, to describe not a lack of permission, but a total inability, a total inability. Chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered, well, actually, it begins in verse 2. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. What is he describing? It's a lack of ability. Nobody can work wonders unless God allows him to work those wonders and does those wonders through him. It's a lack of ability that's being described there. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Lack of permission or lack of power? Lack of a power. You've got to be born from above before you can even see, or even in verse 5, enter into the kingdom of heaven. You have to, in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you do not have the power or the ability to do this. You have to be born from above before you have the ability to do this. Regeneration is necessary because no man has the ability to do these things. Look over at chapter 7, verse 34, real quick. Chapter 7, verse 34. Jesus here in a confrontation with the Pharisees. The crowd in verse 32 was muttering, things about him and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. 
You will seek me and will not find me, for where I am you cannot come. Lack of permission or lack of power? It's a lack of power. It's being described. Verse 36, they got the message. What is the statement that he said, you will seek me and not find me, for where I am you cannot come? It's a lack of power, ability, capacity, strength that's being described there. Man doesn't have the capacity to do this. He cannot go to where Jesus is. In and of himself, he lacks the ability to do that. Something is required. What's required? Chapter 3, he must be born again in order to go and to be where Jesus is going to be. Look at John chapter 8, verse 21. Then he said to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sins, for where I am going you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he, since he says where I am going you cannot come. Exact same phrase that's being used there. Lack of permission or lack of power? It's a lack of power that's being described. Look at John chapter 10, verse 29. Jesus says in verse 28, he gives eternal life to his sheep and they'll never perish and no one snatches them out of my hand. My father who has given them is greater than me, is greater than uh, them to me, is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Exact same phrase. Lack of permission that's described there or lack of ability? Do I have the ability to snatch you out of the Savior's hands? It's not even in my capacity, isn't it? It's not even my power. I don't have strength to do that. I can't do that. It's not just that I'm not permitted to do it. It's that I don't have the power to do it. I don't have the strength to do it. Look at John chapter 10 verse 35. Jesus says the Scriptures cannot be broken. The same word, the same phrase there. They don't have the capacity to be broken. Scriptures are not breakable. And then over in chapter 12, verse 39, you can turn there if you want. 12, verse 39, John says, For this reason they, that is the Jews, could not believe. For Isaiah said again, and he quotes the Old Testament, they were unable to believe because God had judicially blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. So it is not a lack of permission that is being described in John 6, verse 44. It's not that some people are kept out. It is a lack of power that is being described, a lack of ability. You understand the difference between permission and power? My child asked me, Daddy, can I watch TV? I said, no, you cannot. Am I describing a lack of permission or a lack of power? They have all the physical capability in the world to watch TV, right? They have eyeballs, they have brains, underdeveloped, but they have brains that can watch TV and take it all in. There's no, no physical limitation on them whatsoever. Not that they have a lack of ability, they have a lack of permission. But now if my child says to me, Daddy, can I lift your truck? And I say, no, you cannot. Am I describing a lack of permission or lack of power? Fundamentally, I'm describing a lack of power. My eight-year-old lacks the ability to lift my truck. He doesn't have it in his strength, doesn't have it in his capacity. It is the same thing with coming to the sun. No man can, no man is able, no man has the power or the strength. He is without the capacity, without the strength to come to the sun. That is the condition of all of unregenerate people, all of sinful men. Now listen, it is vain to imagine, it is vain to imagine that humanity is populated with people who desire to get into heaven, long to be with Christ, want to spend eternity in heaven with Christ in the presence of God and the redeemed, apart from sin, in the presence of nothing but holiness and righteousness and perfection, but they are being kept out of heaven by some unwillingness of God to receive them or being kept out by some lack of permission. That's not the case at all. Nobody in humanity wants to be with God. We choose the darkness because we love darkness. We hate the light because our natures are corrupt. We lack the capacity and the ability because we are not willing. We do not want it. We do not desire it. Man in his natural state is a hostility with God, at enmity with God. He does not want God and he does not want righteousness. So it is vain to imagine that half of humanity is beating on the door of heaven, but God is saying, no, you can't come in because I don't want you. I haven't chosen you. I haven't given you to my son. 
And so they're kept out by some lack of permission. All of humanity is, in fact, unable entirely to turn from its sin and come to God apart from the grace and the drawing of the Father. That is the condition of fallen humanity. So what kind of inability is this that Jesus is describing? We say it's a lack of power, not a lack of permission, but what type of lack of power? By lack of ability, we don't mean physical ability. We don't mean that there's anything in salvation that requires a physical act on our behalf, any kind of physical movement of the body or something that we do. It's Our inability is not physical in nature. It's not physical in nature. So somebody might object and say, Jim, are you saying that sinners can't pray the prayer? Because I've been around sinners who pray the prayer. And they prayed the prayer. And I've heard people repeat after me and pray this prayer. And they prayed the prayer. And you've been in the meetings, haven't you? Right? With every eye bowed and every head closed. I would like you to repeat after me and the blah, blah, blah. Amen. Now, if you pray, now please keep your eyes closed and your head bowed. And if you prayed that prayer, will you just quickly, slowly, easily, silently, so nobody else can see you, slide that hand up so we can see it. Yes, I see that hand. Yes, I see that hand. We want to make sure that you're able to profess Christ before the multitudes and boldly and unashamedly. So please, while no one else is looking, please lift up that hand. Or just raise your head, make eye contact. I see that. Anybody else? Would anybody else like to? I see another hand. Nobody else? Okay, we'll pray the prayer one more time and then we'll have another opportunity for you to slip your hand up. You've been in those meetings? I've been in those meetings, but in dozens of those meetings. Do sinners pray the prayer? Yeah, they do. And they walk away unregenerate sinners. Because there's nothing about that prayer that saves anybody. And it's not walking an aisle, and it's not checking a box on a card, and it's not praying a prayer. It's not raising your hand or making eye contact with the speaker or having him acknowledge you that makes you saved. It's none of those things. None of those things. If that were a matter, if that's all the salvation were a matter of just that, then would we have any any inability at all to do that? No. I mean, unless you're crippled and you cannot walk the aisle, I guess that would be a physical disability. But salvation is not a matter of where we go or what we do or a ceremony or a ritual or a prayer that we pray or raising our hand or checking a box or acknowledging a set of doctrines. It's not any of that. We say, are sinners unable to believe things? I mean, I know sinners who believe things all day long. I know sinners who believe that the world is round and that the earth revolves around the sun and that water is wet. All we have to do is get the sinner to add Jesus to the list of things that they already believe because they already are able to believe things. We just have to add something to what they believe and they'll be saved. Is it that type of belief that saves you? It's not that type of belief that saves you. That's the type of belief described in John chapter 2 where it says the multitudes believed on Jesus, but he didn't commit himself to any of them because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew what type of belief it was. It wasn't genuine belief. Nicodemus had belief. He said, we know that no one can come to do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus believed certain right things about Jesus. But salvation is not a matter of just exercising the mental capacities and saying, I can adhere to this list of doctrines or these tenets of the faith. It's not a matter of praying a prayer. It's not a matter of, it's not a matter of just acknowledging or believing certain things about Jesus. You must be born from above. That's salvation. No man is able to do that. No man can affect that change on himself. No man can come to the Son. It's not a physical inability that we are describing or that Jesus is speaking of. Listen, it is a moral inability. It is a moral and spiritual inability. No man has the spiritual capacity, the spiritual wherewithal, the spiritual ability or power to come and approach a holy God in and of himself. Something must happen to him to make him willing. It is not a physical inability that is being described. It is a moral inability. Is the sinner able to draw near to a holy God to divorce himself from his sins, to change his spots, to replace his heart of stone with a heart of flesh? Is the sinner able to do anything to affect that or to guarantee that? No, he is not. 
He is not. What is required to come to Christ? It's not walking an aisle. It's not raising your hand while nobody is looking in a meeting. It's not even believing a certain list of doctrines, though that might be included in it. What is required to come to Christ is that I humble myself before a holy God and I recognize I am a wretched sinner and I can do nothing to deserve salvation. And I am from this point forward willing to die to myself, take up my cross and follow you. I am abandoning all of my hopes at self-righteousness and trusting in myself and I'm going to transfer all of the hope and confidence and trust that I have placed in all of my ability to earn God's favor into somebody else who did something on my behalf and I'm going to abandon all attempts at my righteousness and all attempts at my own salvation. I'm going to declare spiritual bankruptcy and place my faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to furthermore turn from my sin and I'm going to hate the things that I once loved and now I'm going to, I'm going to love the things that I once hated. I'm going to divorce myself from all of these things that I have loved and enjoyed for years. That is what I'm going to do. Is the sinner able to do that? He is not able to do that. Why? Because he loves darkness and not light. So he lacks the capacity and the ability to do that. A leopard cannot change its spots. A sinner cannot replace his heart of stone with a heart of flesh. No sinner has the capacity to come to Christ in and of himself apart from the drawing of God. That's what Jesus is saying. No man is able. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. Remember certain texts of Scripture, and I'm just going to read a couple of them for you. Ephesians chapter 2, which we started with, says you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are dead. Not spiritually sick, not terminally ill. You're dead. You were born into this world spiritually DOA, dead on arrival. You were born without any capacity whatsoever to please God. You were born at, at enmity with God and hostile to God in your heart and in your mind. And if it were not for somebody sharing truth with you, which God used to bring you to a different state or a different place, you would remain to this day hostile to God in your heart and in your mind because you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Further, Romans chapter 8 says that we're, our mind that is set on the death, on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset of the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. Hear the, hear the language of inability. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Does repentance please God? Yeah, yeah I hope you're saying yes. Does faith in His Son please Him? Does turning from darkness to light please Him? Does repentance and, and faith please the Father? It does. Does abandoning all of my trust in my own self-righteousness and trusting entirely in the Son, does that please the Father? It does. In my flesh, I am unable to please God. That's what Romans 8 says. All of those things are pleasing to God. I am unable to do any of those in and of myself, apart from the grace of God, because I cannot do anything which pleases Him, because I am a sworn, born enemy of the triune God from the moment of my conception to the moment of my regeneration. A sworn, born enemy. So I am unable. And further, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. How many here have committed a sin? Yeah, as an unbeliever, you are a slave to that sin. If you have committed sin, one sin, you are a slave to that sin. The unregenerate, unredeemed person is a slave to his flesh, his unredeemed flesh. He is a slave to himself, his own carnal desires. He is a slave to sin, and he is a slave to Satan. We are, in our unregenerate state, in bondage more ways than we can possibly imagine. But the Arminian says, no, no, I'm free. And like the foolish Jews of John chapter 8 says, I've never been enslaved to anybody. My will is free, and I can exercise it however I want, whenever I want, 
Come or not come, choose or not choose, decide or not decide. Salvation rests in my own hands. I can do it. I can actuate it. I will affect it. It all rests upon me. That's what the Arminian says. Not according to Jesus. You cannot do any of that. You can do none of it. Because in your unredeemed state, you lack the spiritual capacity to do that. You do not have that spiritual ability. You're without it. Born without it. Sworn enemy of God without it. And so something must happen to make you to turn from your sin and trust in the Savior. Because without that work of grace, you can do nothing. Now you say, but Jim, if we are commanded to do something that we are unable to do, does that mean, since I don't have the ability to do it, that I am not responsible to do it? How right or just is it for God to demand something of me when I don't have the ability to do it? He calls me to repent. He calls me to believe, to turn from darkness to light. He calls me to divorce myself of my sin and to turn my heart to Him, to choose life, to choose righteousness. He makes this demand of me that this is what is required for salvation. But if I have no ability to do that, how can God hold me responsible to do it? Does that objection make sense? It kind of does. It kind of does make sense. How can God hold me responsible to do something that I'm not able to do? Well, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Are you able to do that? Are you responsible to do that? You're going to be. You're going to be held responsible to do that. Without a sin bearer to bear all of your iniquities and your imperfections, is a sinner born in sin able to love the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength from the moment of his birth to the moment of his death without fail? Is a fallen son of Adam able to do that? If you think you, you are, you're a heretic. That's dealt with in the early church. You're not able to do that. No sinner is able to do that. Yet, that is the standard by which we will be judged. God all the time lays out the ideal standard, the, the measure of perfection, and we are unable to meet that, and yet He calls us to it and is going to judge us by that standard. My inability does not negate at all my culpability. Just because I am unable does not mean I'm not culpable. I am culpable and I am responsible. That is why I need a sin bearer. That is why I need somebody to step in and to bear the wrath of God for my inabilities to fulfill His holy law. So ability has no bearing at all upon culpability. You are culpable to do that which you are unable to do. We recognize this in a law court. You got a man who comes into the courtroom and says to the judge, yes, judge, I raped that woman. I didn't have any, I had to rape that woman. I was unable to not rape that woman. I was so compelled to do it. That's all I was thinking about. I planned it. I did it. I purposed it. I did it. I could not have done otherwise. Is the judge going to say, oh, well, you had to do it. You were unable to fulfill the law. Then you're free to go. Judge going to say that? No. Whether or not you are compelled to do something or able to fulfill the law and able to meet the demands of justice does not negate your culpability to do so. God will hold men culpable for their wicked choices, their wicked desires, and the corruptions of their own nature and their own affections. But you say, let me give you another objection. But you say, what is my other objection? Oh yes, the Bible says that we are to choose, and we are told to choose, and we're given the responsibility to choose. Choose life, the Old Testament says. Choose ye this day whom you will serve. And the apostles called for decision, and Jesus called for decision, and he did. And you've heard me call for decision, right? Do I believe that sinful man chooses? Come on, you've listened closely enough. Do I believe that sinful man chooses? Yes, I do. Sinful man chooses every day. He makes real choices that have real consequences for eternity, choices for which he will be judged. 
Men choose all the time. They choose whom, with whom they're going to sin, where they're going to sin, how much they're going to sin, when they will begin sinning, when they will end sinning, with whom they will sin, what degree of sin. Men choose sin all the time. They choose everything under the sun. Men make real and profound choices all the time. The question is, is man capable or able to choose to do good and to choose righteousness, to choose and draw near to the one true God without the divine assistance of that one true God? Is he able to make that choice? And the answer, according to Jesus, is no. Men do choose. They choose every day. They choose all day. The one thing that they will not choose is to come to Christ. See, men like to think that the answer to the human dilemma or a sin problem lies in the will of man. If we can just get man to will something that he didn't previously will, and make a choice that he didn't want to previously make, if we can just get man to make that choice, we can get him saved. The problem with the, the solution to fallen man is not his will. <laughs> the problem with fallen man is his will. That's the problem. What makes us unwilling? We do not desire it because we love what we should hate and we hate what we should love. Our natures are corrupt. Our souls are dead. We are unable in and of ourselves to do anything that pleases him. Men choose... But that is not their glory. That is their shame. Our wills are in bondage and subject and slaves to sin, self, and Satan. And they need to be set free. And we cannot set ourselves free. Somebody else has to step in and set us free. So Jesus says no one is able. Once again, it's not permission that's being denied. It's power. It's power that we do not have. We do not have the capacity to do this. This thing that Jesus requires, we are not able to do. No man is able to come to the Son. But you say, but I did come. And I know I came. And Jesus guaranteed me that if I came, he would not cast me out. That's right. Some people do come. But I would ask you this. To what do you owe that coming to the Son? If God had left you alone, where would you be? And what would you be doing? You would be lost. If God had done nothing else to you, if he had done no work on your heart, if he had not drawn you, you would be lost. That's the teaching of John 6, 44. So here's what it boils down to. If you are lost, if you perish in your sins, you will have no one to blame but yourself. And if you are saved and if you are redeemed, you have no one to thank but God. If you're lost, you have no one to blame but yourself. If you're redeemed, you have no one to thank but God. Why? You had no ability and you would have been punished for your sins, for your choices, which you did make. But God did something to arrest that and to change that and to draw you to himself. And so you have him and only him to thank for your salvation. All to the praise of his glorious grace. And not to your own work, your own choice, or your own decision. Let's pray together. Father, these are very hard things to hear and to understand. But God, we thank you that though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that you raised us up and you seated us with your Son in heavenly places. We thank you that in the day of your power you have overcome our inabilities and that salvation is not a matter of us demonstrating our ability to come to you, but it is a matter of you overcoming our inability and drawing us to your Son. Thank you for making rebels your children. Thank you for making those who are enemies now your sons and the objects of your blessing. Thank you for turning wicked and rebellious hearts to your Son in submission and humble contrition. Thank you for the gift of repentance and the gift of faith. Thank you for overcoming our corrupt wills and our sinful desires and making us in the day of your power 
able and willing to come to your Son. Thank you for your drawing action and your grace to us in your Son. In his name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.